This is episode number 170. Rob Lee summited Everest, swam the English Channel, and biked across America in six months. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. On Everest, it's just one step at a time there, and you know things are not always going to play out like you expect them, and you just kind of have to roll with the punches and stay positive. So there's absolutely going to be days that you don't feel good or that you're like, what am I doing here? I mean, there's times where you're sitting in the tent or there's crazy weather coming through and you get going down the spiral of the amount of money you spent, the time you're spending away from your friends and family and all those kind of things. And kind of like, what am I doing here? And is this worth it? Is this what I want to do? There's always going to be those moments. But I think as long as you kind of just take one step at a time and keep going up the mountain, you can get over those hurdles. I hope you guys had a blast over the holidays and it's always a little bit of a rude awakening to be back at work, but I don't know, being back at work can be really nice too because you get back into your routine and you get to start doing things that are kind of fun and seeing everybody again and just getting back into the groove. I know New Year's resolutions can be a little bit of a feisty subject. Some people love them, some people hate them, but I kind of make resolutions every few months to just have new goals and just to reevaluate where I'm at. But if you've made some New Year's resolutions, we would love to see them. Create an Instagram story that says what your New Year's resolutions are and tag myself and I will share it and we'll get something going to build momentum to help people just think about where they want to go. If you haven't heard, I actually wrote a 21-page ebook last year called Partly Sunny, Cultivating a Resilient Mind. And it's been so cool to get messages from people who have already read it. If you want to get your copy, make sure that you're subscribed to my newsletter, sonyalooney.com slash newsletter. And when you sign up, you'll get a free copy of my ebook. And if you just want to buy the ebook, it is $4.75 at moxieandgrit.com. That's M-O-X-Y and grit.com. I send out one newsletter per week on Friday, letting you guys know what new podcasts are up for the week, and if I came across anything that I think will be valuable to you. This episode is supported by Sufferfest Beer. Sufferfest Beer was founded by Caitlin Landisberg, who has been a guest on this podcast, and I definitely recommend checking out our episode, which is linked into the show notes. But her search for beer was a quest to find the right beer to have after long trail runs in and around San Francisco with her friends. She wanted to create a beer that celebrated her athletic lifestyle and diet. What happened was she ended up creating a new category for beer, functional beer, That's great for people who are calorie conscious and are looking for intentionally chosen high quality ingredients. The beer is crafted to remove gluten and it's also a certified B Corp, which balances purpose and profit to provide benefits to workers, customers, community and environment. So it's a really awesome company. The beer that I'm most excited to try after I have my baby, this beer came out while I was pregnant, so I haven't been able to try it yet, is their Stout. It's called the Sufferfest Head Start Stout, and that's actually a tongue twister. I had to record that a few times to get that right. As Caitlin says, this beer is the love child of silky stout and cold brew coffee. What could be better? 
It only has 135 calories in it, and it tastes good year-round. Go to SupperFestBeer.com to find a dealer near you and check out their website. It's pretty beautiful and pretty cool, and it's really fun for those of us who are athletically focused. So let's get into today's awesome guest, Rob Lee. This guy is an animal, and as you heard in the title, in six months, he summited Mount Everest, he swam the English Channel, he got married, and he rode his bike across America, all while rising awareness for gender equality in the mountains and in the boardroom based on the He for She initiative by the United Nations. Most people won't even be able to do one of the things that he did in six months. The cool thing was he summited Everest with his now wife, Caroline Gleick, who has been a podcast guest, and she is a professional athlete as well. Rob's mountaineering career includes climbs of mountains around the world, including Aconcagua, sorry if I said that wrong, Denali, and most recently, Cho Oyu. Not only is he an endurance machine, but he is a realtor in Park City, Utah. His love for triathlon, inspiration from his wife and professional athlete, Caroline Gleick, and even the medal hanging in his closet as age group 30 to 34, half Ironman, world champion, prove that Rob is no stranger to pushing his limits. In this episode, we talked about how he came up with this idea of the ultimate world triathlon, how to get out of your own way and dream big, men supporting gender equality and how men can support women, prepping for Mount Everest and his experience with risk mitigation and personal safety on Mount Everest, swimming the English Channel, including jellyfish stings, caloric intake, and having to put on 20 pounds of brown fat, biking across America with virtually no training and overcoming the monotony and the will to go on biking across America and so much more. I hope you guys enjoy this awesome episode with Rob. If you enjoy it, make sure that you tag him, send him a message, let us know and share it with your friends. So let's go. Let's hear about this awesome, awesome adventure, the ultimate world triathlon. And maybe you'll feel even more inspired to dream big and sign up for that thing that you've always wanted to do this year. Rob, I'm so stoked that you're on the show. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. I've been following all of the craziness that you've done this year. In one year, you've hiked Mount Everest, you've swam across the English Channel, you've biked across America, actually in six months, and you got married. <laughs> yeah, it's been uh, a hell of a six months here for me. No kidding. Uh, so how did this idea of the Ultimate World Triathlon come to mind? Because for most people, just doing one of those things would be a crazy bucket list event that not that many people would even be able to do one of those things in their entire life. Yeah. So, I mean, I probably always kind of dreamed of all three of these different things. And they came to fruition about, at this point, it's probably about three and a half, four years ago. I was actually at the doctor's office having them take a look at my ankle and I had some ankle problems and felt like I probably needed surgery. And so I went in there. They said, yes, of course, you need surgery. And technically speaking, you probably shouldn't be running anymore. And I come from a triathlete background. So I kind of thought to myself, gosh, you know, I need some kind of a new goal. So I literally sitting on the doctor's table there um, thought, OK, maybe I need to go back to my swimming roots. And I thought, gosh, I've always wanted to swim the English Channel. But I didn't really know anything about the English Channel at that time. So I started researching it. and. Literally after deciding that I was going to do the English Channel on the at the doctor's office there, I started researching and I was like, this is going to be a lot harder than I ever expected. 
But one of the other things that came out of that research was they call it the Everest of swimming. And I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting. I wonder if anybody's ever done both because there's a lot of like blogs online about which is harder, the English Channel or, or climbing Everest. And so it uh, turns out that like, I think at the time there was like eight or nine people who had done it, but no one had ever done it in the same year. So I decided that I was going to try to do this in one year. But with my triathlete background, I was like, gosh, I need some kind of like a bike component to this. And so I've always wanted to ride across the country. So I thought, okay, let's try to add that in. But uh, I kind of thought about trying to do it in like a whole year. Just the way the timing worked out with these three different events, it all kind of put it into a six-month period, which is what really made it difficult for me, actually. These were all things that were potentially in my wheelhouse. Anything can go wrong on any one of those legs, whether it's my own body or mind failing or you know, weather, different things that can happen. But uh, putting them all into a six-month period was really difficult. Like when most people go to the doctor and realize that they're going to get surgery and they get this kind of news, the first thing they think of is probably not, oh, what's the biggest, craziest challenge that I can think of and do it in one year? (laughs) Yeah. You know, the way I look at it is I needed something to look forward to, some reason to you know, of course, you just want your body to be healthy, but you really need something to look forward to, in my opinion, to kind of get through like rehab and all that kind of stuff. When you're sitting on the table there doing all your exercises and all that kind of stuff, you know, I I wanted something to look forward to and something to not just get me back to where I was, but maybe hopefully stronger. And so this was an opportunity to do that. And I've had a lot of injuries in my life. And I kind of felt like, Throughout most of them, you know, there's kind of a reason for those injuries, and I usually come back from them a little bit stronger. I think a lot of times when we have an injury, it's our body telling us we need to take a little bit of a break. So I didn't look at my ankle issues as necessarily a really bad thing. I just looked at it as a reason to be, you know, off my feet for a little while and then, you know, a reason to get back after it. So it takes a lot of courage to dream as big as you do and as big as you did. And I think for a lot of people, like they would think, oh, it'd be cool to climb Everest or it'd be cool to bike across America, but I can't do that. And then they sell themselves short and they change their their dream to something smaller, maybe because they don't know how to do it or they just think they can't. So where did you learn to dream so big and what advice do you have for people who are trying to get themselves to be more confident to dream a little bit bigger? I think it's a combination of having success and failures through your life. And you learn that the failures usually, again, kind of like the injuries. I mean, that's in some way, that's kind of a failure. Um, a lot of times those can lead to better things. So I, I have to give a little credit to my now wife, Caroline. I think um, when I look at certain objectives, I probably don't I don't know if I would have come up with this whole triathlon without her influence. And she wasn't all that pleased when it, right when I came out with it, to be completely honest. Um, but, but she's, uh, she, she's also like kind of the driving force. She really thinks really big, like what's going to make this big statement and how do, how do I do this? And she lives in that world of kind of like whatever first descents and ascents and all these kind of things, uh, you know, in some ways, you know, she'll talk about going to ski a mountain. She's like, no one's ever done it. And I kind of think, well, there's probably a reason no one's ever done it, you know, <laughs> but she's kind of taught me to think a little bit bigger. And, you know, we'd been dating a couple of years when I had that injury and I kind of came up with this idea. So I don't know, I would just say that, you know, failures are really short lived and they can lead to bigger things. And you just have to learn to accept those and ways to learn and get better for the next, whatever it is that you're trying to achieve. Yeah. And it sounds like you said, looking at somebody else who does those things that it can inspire you. But I think one of the challenges of that is people can respond in two different ways. Like they could see someone like Caroline 
doing all these amazing things. And, and for those listening, Caroline Gleick has been on the podcast, so we'll link that in the show notes. But they could look at someone like Caroline and say, wow, that's so awesome. She's doing that. I wonder what I can do. Or they could look at someone like Caroline and say, well, look at what she's doing. Well, I could never do that. So there's like that line of being inspired versus saying, well, I could never do that. And it's just hard to articulate how to move across that line. Yeah, I, mean, I would just say you always have to take baby steps. I mean, all three of these things in my Ultimate World Triathlon were sort of in my wheelhouse because I have done these different sports my entire life. So to a certain extent, I've been kind of like, you know, getting the knowledge and the fitness for them all along. And, you know, looking at like Everest is a great example. You don't just wake up and decide you're going to go climb Everest. You, <laughs> you've spent a lot of time in the mountains over your entire life and, or, you know, at least a number of years. And then you decide, okay, well, if I want to go climb Everest, first, I'm going to go climb a 6,000 meter peak and then a 7,000 meter peak and then an 8,000 meter peak. And you just take these baby steps to get there. And that's exactly what we did. Um, I'd done some climbing about a decade ago and climbed Denali in uh, Alaska, Nakangagua in South America. So I'd, I'd done some high altitude stuff, but before we did anything more, we wanted to go to Choi Yu. So we did that just over a year ago. Last fall, we went and skied, climbed and skied uh, Choi Yu, the sixth highest mountain in the world, to make sure that we could handle the extreme altitude uh, in the Himalayas there. And you mentioned that at first, Caroline was not quite sold on the idea. What was her reservation or reservations about it? Yeah, it's kind of funny. I don't think she minds me saying, I think, you know, she's a professional athlete. And for me, it's a little bit more of a hobby. And so I think she knew that this would take a lot of time and effort from both of us. And I can't tell you how much she was instrumental in everything from the training to having this thing to come to fruition this year and just be my support this year. So it took a lot of time and effort from her. And I also think that it, you know, it was kind of like the eyes were a little bit more on me on some of this stuff. And sometimes that's hard for her to kind of comprehend, but I think it was a, a good thing for both of us to kind of switch result, uh, roles. Cause a lot of times in her, in these athletic endeavors, I've been the one kind of behind the scenes supporting. And she also, you know, this whole thing was done as a climb and a try for equality. And we wanted to talk about gender equality. And it was kind of funny for her to step back into more of, you could call it like a traditional woman's supporting role. She didn't really want to do that in some ways, but I think she would also tell you that she found it really rewarding and she really enjoyed being a part of this and being instrumental in, in the success. Yeah. And I, I love just the public things I've seen about your relationship. So I want to talk about Climb for Equality and advocating this gender equality and what it means to you. And also how men can be more involved because a lot of times you see women really pushing for this and you hear women kind of, I don't want to say making noise because noise isn't the right word, but taking a stand and being vocal. And there's a lot of strong men that want to support women as well. So do you have any advice for men who want to support strong women? And can you tell us more about Climb for Equality? Yeah. Uh, first, uh, you know, as far as men supporting this fight for equality, I would say it's it's just being an advocate for the women in your lives. And that's really easy to say, but I, I think what it really means is, you know, being vocal about the issues, because as you said, mostly it is women leading kind of this fight. And I actually kind of got called out by a couple of women uh, along the way saying, this isn't your fight. And I thought that was kind of funny. I never wanted to be my fight. I just want to support women for equality. And I think that men, you know, have an equal role in, in making sure that uh, these issues are talked about. 
And, you know, it, it, a lot of it's little kind of implicit bias things. So things that we say and do that we're, we're not always aware of. So one of the things we've done is provide an implicit bias disruptor. And it's just some questions to ask about your everyday life and how you talk about certain things. And if you could, you know, talk about them differently that don't kind of put women in second place. One of the kind of funny things that I've started doing in my real estate career is that it's just kind of normal when you're filling out a, an offer to buy a house, the, the man's name just always goes first. And it's just kind of a, a funny thing that you just automatically do. So I've started putting the woman's names first. And it, it doesn't matter because it's equal ownership. But we've always just put the man first in that sense. So there's these little tiny implicit bias things that I think are, are really interesting to think about. But yeah, I, I think there's other things you can do as far as um, going to he for she and signing the pledge to just support women in that role and just be kind of a part of the movement. And it's also just speaking up when other men or women uh, around are talking about women in a degrading way or just making sure you make sure you're you know promoting the women in your business or something like that just as much as the men, uh, giving them an equal shot. So there's a lot of different things that men can do. You mentioned the implicit bias disruptor questions. Do you have those that we could share with the audience, like either yeah. in a link or a document? Yeah. So it's on the Big Mountain Dreams Foundation website, and I can send you a link to that. And there's just a, a couple of questions you can ask yourself. So I, I can give you those. You can put them in the, the notes here. Okay. And before we move on from this topic, I want to ask you what the difference to you is between gender equality and feminism. Wow, that's a really good question. I don't have a good answer for you, to be completely honest. I don't, um, I don't either, actually. In fact, I never had even yeah. thought about that until you started chatting about gender equality. And then I thought, huh, I wonder if that's the same thing as feminism or if it's something different. <laughs> so it's okay if you don't have an answer. <laughs> no, it's funny. I, again, it, it probably doesn't matter at all. And they can probably use be used interchangeably. But Caroline asked me, honestly, I don't know about it on a regular basis, but if I'm a feminist, and I don't know that I consider myself one, but I'm fighting for gender equality. I, there's uh, something funny about the word. I, I like talking about gender equality, but it's the same thing. And it's just uh, about getting equal rights um, and opportunities for women. So, you know, it's a really interesting question. And I'll have to think about that some more and evaluate my own stance on that. Yeah. And that's just a, a good question for myself and even the audience to think about. And I've heard about men, you know, calling themselves feminists. So, um, oh, yeah. yeah, and I mean, I'm sure that there's a debate we could get into if, if we knew more about it. I love that Caroline proposed to you. <laughs> Can you tell us that story really quickly? And were you expecting that? Yeah, so when we climbed and skied uh, Choyu, I should say Caroline skied it. I, I skied part of it. I skied from the summit, but I didn't ski nearly as much as she did because she's the, the pro at this. But uh, but when we got to the summit there, Caroline uh, dropped one knee there at uh, 26,906 feet, I think it is, and proposed to me. And I can't tell you it was a total surprise. Uh, it was a surprise in the moment. I kind of forgotten about it. And all of a sudden, she's on one knee. And I was like, oh, my God, this is happening here. This is crazy, you know? So it, it was kind of a surprise, but I, I kind of knew it was something that might happen. She had kind of asked if if she asked me if it would kind of take away this thing that I got to do, because we had talked about marriage and that kind of thing. And I said, no, I mean, I don't think it's necessarily just my role to ask you or or the other way around or anything else. And so you know, later I found out she had asked my mom for permission. And she'd said to my mom, something along the lines of I know this is a little untraditional, but I'd like to ask Rob to marry me. And my mom said, that's not untraditional at all. 
because in fact, my mom proposed to my dad some, let's see, what are they? They're like 42 years into their marriage or something like that. So kind of a special deal that it's actually family tradition at this point. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it was a really special moment. And we had an incredible wedding in between my swim and the bike this year. Okay, so let's get into what, what everybody's waiting for. <laughs> so first, let's talk about Everest. I mean, most people hear, oh, Mount Everest and you know altitude and, and it's dangerous. How did you prepare for this? And what were some hiccups along the way that you experienced? Yeah, I mean, I, like I said before, I think something like Everest is something you train for for you know years and years. And I had uh, done the, the high altitude climbing in South America up to about 7,000 meters, just below Aconcagua is like just below 7,000 meters. And I, I knew that I did pretty well at uh, elevation. I, I felt pretty strong. Um, I don't, part of that probably has something to do with that. I live at about 600 feet here in, in Park City, Utah. So I, I kind of knew I had that in me. And then going to Choyu was the next step. On Everest, it's just one step at a time there. And you know things are not always going to play out like you expect them and you just kind of have to roll with the punches and stay positive. So there's absolutely going to be days that you don't feel good or that you're like, what am I doing here? I mean, there's times where you're sitting in the tent or there's crazy weather coming through and you kind of get going down the spiral of like the amount of money you spent, the time you're spending away from your friends and family and all those kind of things. And kind of like, what am I doing here? And is this worth it? Is this what I want to do? There's always going to be those moments. But I think as long as you kind of just take one step at a time and keep going up the mountain, you can kind of, you know, get over those hurdles. And it was totally, I would say, worth all of the things that I, I just mentioned. In the end, it's a pretty special thing to not, not know that I just went to the summit, but just the whole experience of being on the mountain for 40 days, you know, the relationships I built with our team members and all those kind of things was really special. And it's just something I'll never forget. So definitely worth it. Yeah. I mean, I think that a lot of people don't realize that whenever you're doing something like Everest or another really high altitude mountain, that you're not moving the whole time. You're not hiking the whole time. And that there is a lot of time like in your tent. What did you do to pass the time? And can you tell people why there's a lot of waiting? Yeah. So the first reason there's a lot of time and waiting is that you're just acclimatizing. You're waiting for your body to feel better. And what we did, we actually did a rapid ascent. So most people spend 60 to 70 days on the mountain. Oh, wow. <laughs> did, uh, I think our plan was 40, but with the weather, it ended up being a couple more, more days. I think it was 45 days on the mountain. But you're constantly, you know, once you get to base camp, which we went from the Tibetan side. So when you're at base camp, you're at 17,000 feet. So immediately when you get there, you spend a couple of days just living and doing very little. And then after that, you start hiking and moving your body a little bit more and going a little bit higher to get used to these altitudes. But we were able to kind of shortcut that process slightly by using what's called a hypoxico tent. So it's a tent that goes over your bed and it kind of, you know, seems like it sucks air out, but it's actually pushing air into this tent that has less oxygen in it. And you can kind of simulate at home here being higher. So this all happened in the months leading up to Everest. And we, by the time we left Park City, uh, we are sleeping at like 17,000 feet. So that's how we kind of shortcut it a little bit and we're able to do a rapid ascent. 
But you're also, you know, you're moving up the mountain, you're coming back down to let your body rest and recover because even up at uh, like advanced base camp at 21,000 feet, your, your body's not in good shape. You're kind of constantly sick and, it, you know, you just don't feel very well. It kind of feels like you've got a cold the whole time, you're coughing, all those kind of things. And then we just call it, call it low-grade suffering. You're just not feeling 100%. So once you come back down to, say, base camp at 17,000 feet, you feel a lot better all of a sudden. And then you move up the mountain again and, and it's kind of, you do this in stages. So uh, during that whole time, we would just, you know, play lots of cards, watch shows on our phones or computers. We had computers down low, not up high, but we would just, just do that kind of stuff. Definitely you're doing hiking and you're kind of preparing your body and your mind by, you know, going out, making sure you've got all the, the systems in place, the gear and everything. You're, you're ready for when it is time to go, but there's kind of a lot of time waiting around until it is time to go there, especially this year with the weather. Yeah. I mean, that would take an incredible amount of patience, especially because you're not, I mean, most of us are digitally connected all the time. So you're not passing the time, like scrolling through Instagram on your phone. <laughs> well, what's funny is on the North side at base camp, we actually had LTE like half the time it would go mm. come in and out, but we actually did have some service, but it got quite expensive after a little while to be uh, completely honest. <laughs> But of course, above that is what you really want. You, you do want to get away from technology. I know that it's hard for us these days to, to get away from it, but that's why you're there is to like be in the mountains and, and experience nature and experience the people around you. And so we, we did that. And we would kind of meet every night, uh, even though we had dinner at, I'm trying to think it was like 5.30, we'd usually meet at like four and play cards and stuff like that for a couple of hours before. So there was, you're basically just letting your body acclimatize and sitting around and kind of twiddling your thumbs, but trying to stay patient and positive uh, for when the time is right. And I mean, at that altitude, personal safety is something that's at the front of your mind. I certainly haven't been nearly as high as Mount Everest, but I've been in Nepal and I've been up to almost 18,000 feet. And I know that even like 10 meters makes a difference. And sometimes it's really hard to make that call, especially like at Everest, you hear about this where people can actually see the summit and they decide not to summit because that extra 10 or 50 meters is just going to be too much. So how did you decide on personal safety versus pushing limits and, and when that's okay? And then can we kind of take that a step back and apply that to people who aren't doing Everest, but are, are doing, you know, challenges or events where they're, they're pushing their limits, but their personal safety could potentially be at risk? Yeah, I mean, going to Everest, one of the things we went with Alpenglow Expeditions and they're really well known for being kind of one of the top companies and also one of the safest companies. And we certainly could have found a less expensive option out there. But when you're talking about Everest, you know, kind of like skimming corners doesn't seem like it's the way to go, honestly. And so we made an effort to, you know, pay more money and make sure that we were with the right people. And they have systems in place to double and triple check like everything. And I felt really safe on the mountain. I really did. I, you know, you never know on any mountain what could go wrong and there could be rock fall or something really out of your control, but I really felt safe with my own training and as far as, you know, physically, and then just my kind of, I will call it like mountain sense, just feeling like I was in the right place and I could keep going. And I always knew that if there was, if I wasn't feeling safe or comfortable you know, there's no reason to keep pushing it. I really think that this stuff is fun. Not everybody kind of does in some ways, but if I'm not having fun, I'm going to turn around and some it's just not worth it. So in looking at what 
how people can use that uh, in their everyday lives and different kinds of training. I would just say you have to find your own limits and you can keep pushing your body and just see how it feels. But I think it also has to be fun and rewarding. I think as you learn your body more and more, I don't use like a heart rate monitor and that kind of stuff that much. Most athletes I think do nowadays, but I just really try to listen to my body. And when my body says it's time to be done, you know, I have no problem turning around. So I think you can always watch your, you know, your heart rate and your watch and, and all these different metrics. But I think you just need to think about your own body and, and listen to your body. And when it says it's done, you need to, to pull the plug. Did you have any moments where you were hiking and something happened and like you guys had to make a call or where you disagreed on what the call was? I would say for the most part, no. I mean, there was little things here and there, but in general, the only kind of thing that happened was a team member of ours on the way down, which is honestly where you have more of your injuries and, and even deaths on these big mountains. We were moving really well. Everyone was feeling great, but you're also still moving in pretty interesting terrain. It's not super technical, but you've got crampons and there was a ton of wind on Everest this year. So we were doing a lot of crampons on rock, which can be kind of a little bit tricky and not, not the funnest kind of climbing, but he just tripped and, and hit his face and started bleeding and that kind of thing. And it was one of those moments where we had to like get on the radio and make sure that medical supplies are ready and those kind of things. And I think there was a little bit of a gap in some communication there. But in, in general, I think that as team members, there were kind of five clients with Glow, including Caroline and myself. We worked really well together. The guides and the Sherpas, everyone was kind of working really well. And, and you need that. And that's, that's why we went with Glow is because we know their record for success and, like I said, safety. Did you guys see any dead bodies along the way? Yeah, we did. We saw a number of them. And, it, you know, wow. it's definitely a, kind of a hard thing to see. And a lot of people ask about it and like, how can you walk past these bodies? But honestly, most of them were probably decades old. Some of them, you don't see their faces. They're usually face down or maybe they have a bag over them or something like that. And it's definitely a reality check of where you are and what can happen. But most of them, to me, it almost seemed like kind of a piece of Everest, like uh, Everest history we were seeing because most of their clothes are kind of like super old, like, you know, decades old. And so I, I didn't really relate to them all that much. The other reason I think we saw a bunch of the bodies, I, I think you probably normally see them, but like I said, there was a ton of wind on Everest. So I think that some of the bodies actually got unburied. So it was definitely a reality check. There was a death on our side of the mountain the day before, and we had to, to go right by that gentleman. And that was a huge reality check, kind of knowing what could happen really quickly if something went wrong. So, you, you know, you, you take that and you put that in your, your bank of knowledge of like, okay, I need to stay on point here and make sure that I'm feeling good because there's no reason to reach the summit and then not go home. But, you know, it's not as easy as just like taking the bodies down or something like that. And that's what we learned is, I mean, it would cost probably $100,000 plus per body to take these down because it's also putting other people at risk when you send people up and try to take down a body. I mean, it's, it's a lot of weight and it's hard to get a body off the mountain. So it's a little strange to do that. And I can understand why people would think that, but uh, it's just part of Everest at this point to a certain extent. So did it shake your confidence at all? I just, I, I've never seen a dead body myself. <laughs> and I just imagine like, man, that would be so hard. And like you said, a reality check. So I don't know, did it shake your confidence or was it just kind of a reminder that this could happen, but it probably won't happen to me? 
No, I mean, like I said, I felt safe the entire time. I felt like I was moving well and that we had the right team and all those kind of things. It was a reminder of what could go wrong, but I don't know that it shook my confidence. Like I said it before, it's one step at a time and we kept doing that. And, you know, after you pass the body, you're you're not thinking about that body. You're thinking about the next couple of steps and making sure that, that you don't do something wrong, you know. And you're just kind of trying to stay focused on the task at hand and that was you know, not only getting to the top, but getting to the top safely and down safely. So just making sure every foothold was, you know, steady and all those kind of things. I've seen online, the price to go up Everest could be anywhere from like 45 to 70 grand per person. And you can tell me if that's wrong. How did you guys raise money to go? Because I think a lot of people think, well, it'd be cool, but wow, that kind of money, that'd be really hard to spend. Yeah, you're mostly right. It starts at about 45, but it definitely goes a lot higher than that. I think <laughs> some of the companies uh, charge over $100,000. And we were we were towards the top of that range there. And honestly, I just, you know, Caroline had some sponsor help with that. And so that was great to cut down the cost for her. Um, for myself, I've just been saving money for a lot of years to try to be able to do something like this. And I did set up a GoFundMe page for my whole triathlon and I was able to raise some funds in that. And those were all super helpful compared to the, the cost of Everest. It was, you know, I was still paying mostly out of pocket for this. So, you know, it, it was just something that I saved up to do and that I've always kind of thought I wanted to do and it was, it was time to do it. So it was a big bullet to bite, but we went for it. And like I said, I think we were happy with the result. And this might be an unintelligent question, but why is it so expensive? Is it because these companies are taking on a risk, so they just charge a lot of money? Or is there an actual like high cost going in terms of permitting? Like, Why does it cost so much money? You know, I don't know all the budgetary concerns that they have, but I can tell you, I don't, I don't think that a lot of these companies make as much money as we think they're making on them. The permit alone on Everest, I think is like, I think they just increased it this year, but it's something like 10 or $12,000. You know, once you start getting into it, there's a lot of logistics as far as, you know, getting to the mountain, it's all your food and a lot of the gear up there. Oxygen is quite expensive. You've got oxygen regulators. But on top of that, there, you know, we did have some luxuries with our company as far as like we had some internet capabilities when we were higher up. But mostly what we were probably paying for, in my opinion, was those like, you know, the backup systems that they had in place, meaning they had like a base camp manager making sure that everyone's oxygen levels were okay. Someone for our parents to call if, if they needed to just get a little reassurance along the way. All these, there's just a ton of different factors. The guides that we went with were experienced guides and, you know, they've got to pay them. So I think the costs definitely add up. There's companies that you can go with that are in Nepal. And I hate to say don't go local there because, of course, we want to support those economies. And I think we do by going there. But at the same time, you'd really want to vet some of those companies and make sure that they're doing it right. I think where people get in trouble on Everest is if they're not as experienced and they go with a company that's not as experienced up there. And that's where you have a lot of these deaths happening. If you have a, a company that's really experienced and you're not as experienced, they'll, they'll pull you off the mountain before you ever get a chance to cause yourself any harm. And then the other way around, if, if you're super experienced and you're up there with this team that you can tell doesn't have the experience that's needed to climb these kind of mountains, you're going to pull the plug before you, you get yourself into trouble. So I think you're just paying for the whole package of safety, some luxuries. I mean, I'm sure our food was a little better because we paid a little bit more, but that also 
wasn't just like a luxury, you know, you want your body to be in, you know, as good a condition as it can be to try to tackle this kind of feat. My last question about Everest is I don't know a lot about the use of oxygen and like what that's like. So can you talk about that a little bit just so we can learn? Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's a ton of different ways you can do it for us. Basically, we started oxygen at Camp One, which is 23,000 feet. There's probably some companies that, that start a little bit higher, but I think pretty much everyone's starting about that elevation these days. That that number has gone down in recent years. I think before, you know, 10 years ago, they probably didn't start using oxygen until a little bit higher. And then once you're on oxygen, I mean, it's funny to say, but it's like the best drug you can possibly get. It's It's going to help everything you're doing as far as your mental clarity and then your speed and the way you do things on the mountain. So I originally considered trying to do Everest without oxygen, but I heard so many stories about the, you know, the few people who have done that getting to the summit and probably not remembering the summit or not remembering like half of the summit day. And I just thought, I can't imagine going all that way to like summit Everest and then not remembering half the day or the summit or whatnot. So I decided pretty quickly to to forget that idea and use the oxygen. You know, the bottles are quite heavy and they go in your backpack and then you've got a little tube and you can adjust your flow rate and it kind of depends on the company. That's another reason we probably paid a little bit more is we have more oxygen available if you need it. And so we're generally at a probably a little bit higher flow rate than some of the like budget companies. So that's definitely if someone's going to go do not necessarily Everest, but any of this high altitude uh, mountaineering is something to look at is if oxygen is available and also what like flow rates you might use. Yeah, it's, I don't know. It, it's a pretty simple system. It, it, you know, it just goes in your backpack and then you, you've got it, uh, a little mask that you use. So do they try to regulate like a certain SpO2? Because it seems like you could just have a really high flow rate and have like an SpO2, like your blood oxygen level of like 98%, which we know it definitely wasn't that when you were up there. And you hear like how hard it is to take one step after another, even with oxygen. So like, where do they optimally try to tell you to like, what ranges do they try to tell you to keep it in in order to, you know, not run out? And then, I don't know, just to be safe. Yeah, I mean, the blood oxygen saturation level that you're talking about, everyone is totally different. And you realize that once you get up there, you can be on the same amount of oxygen and, and you're constantly taking that measurement even before you go on oxygen to see where your body's at. And it's if you were in the States and at home and you took your blood oxygen saturation level and you were at like 70, they would probably rush you to the, um, the hospital and do a, a million different tests and it would be like a huge deal. When you're at 70 on oxygen or on Everest, you're actually in pretty good shape, honestly. So it, it just depends. Some people get down into the 50s, and that's, I think, where they really start saying, hey, it's, you need to either get on more oxygen or take some of the uh, drugs that could help or go down uh, lower on the mountain. There's a combination of things you can do there. Generally, when we were hiking, we were at four liters per minute, I believe. Yeah, four liters. And that's opposed to some of the companies because they don't pay it for the oxygen or for the help to get the oxygen on the mountain, that kind of thing uh, might be at more like two liters per minute. And so you're just taking a lot slower steps. When you're out like climbing, you're not really taking your blood oxygen. It's more like a resting thing to see where your body's reacting and how it's doing on a daily basis. You could get really obsessed with taking it like every half hour or, or more just to see where your, your body's at. But everyone's totally different. So again, I, I go back to you got to see where your body is feeling. And if you're not feeling good, maybe you take your measurements and see where you're at. But generally, 
we were probably in the 70s and 80s most of the time we were on the mountain. Okay, so there's basically no way to like give yourself enough oxygen so you feel like no. you would at home. No. So they, they, I think they, some people go as high as six liters per minute, but I think the studies they found that that doesn't help that much. I mean, it, it could depend partly on how much you're like when we were in our tents at like, um, you know, camp three, that's 27,000 feet. You're not at a four liter flow by any means. You're at either a half liter or one liter. So the four liter mm-hmm. flow would be more while you're walking and climbing, whereas you're on a much slower flow in the mm-hmm. tent there. And that's partly because you just don't have the capabilities to get that much oxygen high up on the mountain. But even if you did, you wouldn't be at like 98 all the time or anything like that. It, you, you know, you're, I think I'm trying to remember what they say, but you're getting like half the benefit of that extra air. So you're, you're still going to be low. Okay. Thanks for explaining that. That's really helpful. Yeah. So let's move on to the English channel. <laughs> you, it's natural to lose a bunch of weight whenever you go do Everest. And my understanding from what I read is that you actually need to have quite a bit of excess body fat for the English channel. Cause you have to do the entire thing in a speedo with no wetsuit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I thought the biggest crux of the whole swim was going to be the cold and it, it was difficult, but I think I trained for it as good as I could here in Utah. Cause I don't have like, you know, San Francisco Bay would be like a perfect place if I lived in San Francisco to go swim every day and get your body really used to those temperatures. But yeah, I, I lost a lot of weight on Everest. And so I knew that was going to happen. So I kind of put on some weight beforehand. And then, so I, let's see, my normal body weight's in like the 175 range. And when I went to Everest, I was 195. Mm-hmm. And then I lost 20 pounds on Everest in like the 40 days we were there. So I came back about 175. And I knew I would literally probably get hypothermia if I tried to do the English Channel at that that body weight. So in 35 days, I put on about 30 pounds definitely is not something I'd recommend for people. Uh, as much as it sounds great to like eat everything you want and do that, first of all, I don't think it's very healthy. Second of all, you really just get sick of eating. I, I got super sick of eating all the time to try to put on the weight. But I would do that in combination with doing like cold water stuff. And I'm basically trying to tell my body to put on that extra fat and keep it there, let it do its natural thing. And I was trying to put on what's called brown fat and it's kind of like baby fat. It's this like insulating layer that we have when we're born. A lot of us lose it because now in our lives, most people go from their heated house to their heated car to their heated office or whatnot. And so you kind of lose this little insulating layer. So I spent a lot of time in like ice baths, also swimming in cold water around Utah. And I went to San Francisco twice to swim there and, and that kind of thing. But I knew that the crux was going to be the cold. So I put on a lot of weight in anticipation of the swim. Okay. So to get brown fat, like basically you have to eat a crazy amount of calories and then expose yourself to the cold. I'm definitely not an expert here. But I, I think it's more, you know, experiencing extreme environments. So it's more doing like the cold training and that kind of thing is gonna is gonna help with that body fat. I just didn't have the time to basically just do that. So I just ate a ton of like carbs and broke every like diet rule you could ever do, eating like, you know, pizza in bed right before going to sleep. And then I would eat anytime I wasn't full instead of like eating when you're hungry or something like that. If I wasn't full, I just go to the fridge and pick something out. And I was going through like two quarts of whole milk a week. I mean, just stuff that I would never even consider doing. But uh, yeah, you know, I was able to put on the weight and I think it really helped. Did you find that your energy or your mental clarity changed? Because I know like when you eat a bunch of like, sounds like you're eating, yeah, foods that weren't super healthy (laughs) and in excess, like, did you find that it affected your mood or your energy? Yeah, I just felt sluggish in general. I think physically and probably a little bit mentally. More physically, I just 
I wasn't really happy with like feeling, I just kind of felt gross, honestly. It was kind of an interesting thing when we're talking about gender equality to think about body image a little bit. It's sort of funny that probably the mo- like most shared photo of me of all time was right before I started the English Channel. I was on the boat. I was drinking a Red Bull of all things. And I was like 35 pounds over my normal weight. And you know I'm just in a Speedo there. And I was like, that's the photo that has to get shared a million times. Not a million, but you know. Yeah, probably a million. <laughs> And it's kind of interesting to think about, I don't, you know, I don't, I, I think body image is a big deal. And I think we almost always associate that with women and body image, but I think men need a little attention there as well. I don't think it's just an issue. And it was kind of funny to think about that in the whole context of this gender equality triathlon. Yeah, that's a really good point because this is something I think about a lot. Like you look at American sitcoms on TV and it's like the dude is always like, a really overweight guy and it's almost like funny and acceptable for men. So people think that, well, a guy doesn't, isn't going to have body image problems because they're allowed to be this way. Whereas women are more expected to look fit or skinny or whatever. So thanks for bringing that up. I think that's a, a really good point. Yeah. It's, it's kind of an interesting dynamic. And I think both men and women deserve that conversation. And it, it's interesting to think about. So for people who are like swimming the English Channel, like number one, what is that? And how far is it? And how cold is the water? Like, can you elaborate what that adventure is like? Yeah. So point to point as the crow flies, it's uh, about 21 miles. At least the shortest distance is 21 miles if you can hit the Cape, which is really hard to do. But uh, the water's about, I mean, it it totally changes throughout the, the year, of course. When I swam it, it was about 61 degrees. And so... I had to do a six-hour test swim before I could even kind of attempt the English Channel. And so I did that actually about two weeks before I left. I should have done it like months before I left, but just the way everything worked out, I did it about two weeks before. And that was the longest swim I had ever done at six hours in like 60-degree water. So that prepared me pretty well. But I also knew that I had to swim like double that distance or more probably. And so, yeah, they've got a lot of like rules and there it's the english channel federation swimming federation uh, or channel association that has these rules about you know you can only wear basically a bathing suit a cap and goggles and nothing else you know they have lights and stuff like that for night but you can't wear anything for warmth you can put a little bit of like petroleum in your arms or on your neck for chafage but you can't really do much more than that and they've got a lot of other rules about like you have to get out clear the water they sound the horn you start and same thing when you finish you have to clear the water before everything's done and no one can touch you and all these kind of things so it's it's just you and the ocean out there but you do have a boat with you to kind of guide you across and they can give you food and water and they call them feedings so you can take those at any interval but Generally, like I took mine at every hour for the first like three hours and then every half hour after that, I would stop and they can lower down like a little something in a kind of a a basket, like a, you know, whether it's like a cliff bar or something like that. And then throw me like a water bottle on a string so I can drink something. I can just never touch the boat. If I touch the boat, I'm disqualified. So yeah, that's kind of the, the nuts and bolts of it. My swim ended up taking 11 hours and 49 minutes, which was actually faster than I was expecting. But the tides are pushing you as you're swimming across, you get basically a cross tide current every six hours or so. And so you do this kind of big S turn across the channel. So my watch when I was done said that it was a 28 mile swim. So that shows you how much the tides are actually pushing you during the swim. Wow. I I can't even imagine swimming that far. And also, like you said that before, 
six hours was your longest swim in preparation for this two weeks before. So like, how did you know that you'd be able to make it? You know, I, I'd done some like two and three hour swims and I just, this is just up my alley as far as the endurance stuff. I, I've been a swimmer my entire life. So I swam through high school. I swam through college at UC Davis. I've never done this kind of like long distance swimming, but just with the amount of like hours and miles I've put in the pool and in, in open water over the years, I, I felt like it was in my wheelhouse. I probably the longest swim I'd done before that six hour swim was probably three and a half hours. So that six hour swim was almost double what I'd previously done. And then two weeks later I had to go do double that. But I think it's just, you know, staying positive and knowing that, um, you know, if, if I don't do it, then I, I'll learn to do longer swims before the next one. You know what I mean? Like if I, if I didn't uh, succeed on that, on this try, then I was, I'm sure there's no way I could just let it go. I'd just train a little harder and do longer swims before my next attempt. Yeah. And I imagine that six hour swim could either be like, well, it would be a big reality check that would either give you confidence to say, yeah, okay, I'm probably gonna have to do double this amount of time or maybe more. Or like, did you have thoughts of this is I'm not gonna be able to do it? Or did it make you feel more confident? Six hour swim was probably a little harder than I thought because the water was was pretty chilly that day. I think it started about 59. And honestly, the, the difference between 59 and like 61 is actually pretty significant. doesn't sound like it, but in water and, in, you know, over hours, your body gets pretty cold. So I felt pretty good going into it, but I, I was more worried about the swim than any other leg of this triathlon, mostly because of the cold and just because of the unknown that I hadn't done this sort of thing. The other reason that I was pretty unsure about it was after we got back from Everest, and I think it was good advice. Someone gave me the advice to not swim that much between Everest and the channel because if I swam you know, a couple of hours every day and did a ton of swimming, I wasn't going to be able to put that weight on because I was just literally burning too many calories. So I basically spent most of the you know month between the two events just eating and putting on weight. And then about two weeks before when I had to do that six hour swim, I did that. And then I started swimming like, you know, one to two to three, eh, probably only two and a half hours at most before I went out. And when we got to England, I actually, I think I picked up some kind of bug on the plane or something. And when, when it was like time to swim, I, I did not feel all that confident, but it was just kind of like, well, we're here. It's time to go. We're going to jump in and see how it felt, uh, feels. And I, I jumped in and I immediately kind of said to myself, okay, I, I feel pretty good. And then in the next, in the first hour or two, I thought, gosh, I, I feel great in the water right now. This is like really good news. Um, but I also knew that I had a long, long way to go. So I was pretty optimistic, but I would, I would call it cautiously optimistic after a couple of hours of swimming. And were there any times or moments during the swim where you're like, I want to quit. I, I got to grab onto that boat. And then the other, you know, the other voice, no, don't grab on the boat. Keep going. You got this. Like, did you have that battle ever happen in your mind or were you just so focused that it was just forward motion the entire time? I thought I might have some of those moments, but I never did. Partly because I think I just kind of convinced myself that I honestly didn't want to have to like do that whole like binge eating thing and all this cold training and all this stuff all over again. Like I was just like, okay, especially once I got like six hours in, it was like, okay, I'm halfway there. I just need to finish this thing. I don't want to have to like come back and do this thing. And I knew that if I wasn't able to complete it, that I would definitely want to come back and do it. So for the most part, I didn't have those moments. Probably the biggest thing that happened was I knew there was going to be jellyfish in the uh, channel, but I'm told that there was probably more jellyfish than usual. I got stung probably over a hundred times. And most of those were 
not that bad if you know if it brushes up against your arm or your leg or something like that it was okay and it was kind of almost like a little shot of adrenaline um in a weird mystic way i kind of like enjoyed it and i was kind of looking forward to that as like kind of restart the mind and like give me something to think about because you just got your head in the water for like 12 hours you almost need something to like do and think about but I did have a couple of like I had two direct blows to the face with jellyfish that were super painful. And then one other like I guess you'd call it like a bloom of jellyfish that I swam through like, I don't know, a couple dozen. And I just got, you know, my whole body was just like kind of stinging and on fire. And at one point I thought, okay, I'm, I'm handling these okay. But, you know, if this continues for hours on end, can I kind of keep up with this mentally? And also, like, could it give me some kind of, like, toxicity in my body or something like that that's going to stop me from doing this? But the good news is after around hour seven, the tide changed. And for whatever reason, that affects, like, where the jellyfish are going to be. And so there were still jellyfish, but not nearly as many. And so I would, you know, there's a couple hours there I was getting stung probably 25 times an hour. And then after that, I'd just get stung maybe once or twice an hour or something like that. That's super hard to imagine. Um, were there any other wildlife that you're worried about? Like, are there sharks there or like other things? Or is it just jellyfish? Not not just like it's nothing. Like yeah, 25 times an hour is insane. <laughs> uh, yeah, no sharks. So didn't have to worry about that at all. I'm sure there's some other marine life out there. But um, I think I probably saw a couple little fish, but that's about it. It was mostly just a lot of jellyfish. And yeah, like I said, I think there's probably other stuff out there, but nothing to, to worry too much about. So that was obviously one kind of, you know, English Channel is a, an iconic swim, but I think not having to worry about sharks is obviously a good reason to go try that one out. And how did you figure out what you needed in terms of nutrition? Because whenever you're cold, like, I don't know if you felt cold. I would imagine that even though you put on, you know, brown fat, that you still would feel cold and then your body needs more calories to stay warm. So like, how did you figure out the caloric intake and the type of calories? Mostly just trying to practice along the way and doing a little experimenting like on that six hour training swim that I had to do. And, you know, mostly I just did cliff products and that stuff. I, I've generally got a pretty good gut. The challenge with swimming is that you're horizontal the entire time. So anything you take down doesn't necessarily digest the same way that normal food would if you're sitting up. So a lot of stuff tends to sit in your gut in a different way and it can make people sick. I ate and drank a lot more than I was expecting along the way. I, you know, I was expecting to stop every half hour, but I didn't think I'd get much down. But I took down a number of like cliff bars, cliff gels. I had Snickers. I had PB&Js. I drank a couple of Red Bulls and I drank some Muratin, if you're familiar with that. It's um, kind of a newer formula that is kind of a liquid form, but it, it's sort of a solid and has more calories in it. So I was, I was drinking a lot of that to try to get calories in as well. I was really just trying to stay on top of calories. One thing you don't have to worry about while swimming in the ocean is electrolyte deficiency because you're literally like surrounded by salt and eventually you're going to drink some of that seawater as well. You, you know, obviously, you're trying not to drink much, but with waves and stuff, you're going to drink some of it. So electrolytes are not an issue. It's just getting hydration and calories down. Yeah. And in terms of hydration, like drinking water, is that part of what they lower down? And how did you know how much water to drink? Because you probably don't feel thirsty. You know, whenever they kind of stopped me and it was half hour, it was kind of a good reason for me to like stop, recharge a little bit and just get as many calories down and, and water as possible. They would usually surprise me or just ask me what I needed, you know, the next half hour. And I would tell them I had some bananas and stuff like that as well. So I'd say, hey, give me a banana or I definitely utilize the, uh, the old silver bullet, the, the cliff bar espresso with some, uh, <laughs> some caffeine in there. So I was just doing everything I could to kind of 
keep the, the calories going. I didn't have any, a lot of people might have more of a formula for, I need this many calories every hour, but I just kind of took down what I could without making myself sick. Okay. Wow. Well, I think you're the first person who's ever done both of those Everest and the swim in one year, right? Yeah, that's right. Yep. That's awesome. Congratulations. And then, that. you know, if that's not enough, you decided, okay, now I'm going to bike across America. <laughs> yeah. So how, how much time did you have to train for that? Because when you're doing all these things in one year, like they're all, the training is different for all of them, like really different. Yeah. So it was 47 days between the summit of Everest and my, my swim of the English channel. I don't know how many days between that. It was about a little under two months, about a month and a half between the swim and the bike. But I had that little thing called my wedding in between as well. Um, so I initially was like all ready to start biking and get my bike fitness up and soon realized that I had to focus on, you know, I also, also have my full-time job as a realtor here in Park City. So I needed to work a bit. I needed to make sure that I was doing my part for the wedding preparations and all that kind of stuff. So I actually rode very little and that's part of what made the bike very hard for me in between the, the swim and the bike. I probably got on my bike a half a dozen times and those were like hour to two hour max rides. Oh so road at all. And I had ridden, you know, quite a bit over the winter on the trainer with hypoxico and all that kind of stuff. I was doing up to like four hours on the trainer. So it's not like I hadn't ridden at all, but in the you know previous, well, probably four months before I started this ride or so I'd barely ridden at all. And I had pretty high ambitions for the ride as far as trying to do it in about a month. And I wanted to do closer to like 130 miles a day. And once I started the ride, I, I soon realized like I might be able to do this, but I will just be absolutely miserable the entire time. And like I said, I, when I do this kind of stuff, I want to be having fun and enjoying myself. So I slowed things down a little bit once I got on the bike. It ultimately took me 39 days to get across the country, which is about 100 miles a day. My, uh, my total mileage was a little over 3,600 miles. So I took like two kind of half rest days along the way, but generally I, I was riding 100 miles a day. Yeah. And it's not like, I mean, you did it in September, so it's not like you could say, well, I'll just put it off for a couple of months because the weather... Yep. I mean, there was a lot of different factors. Um, I wanted to get across the country and I also was going to do it more self-supported, but I ended up having Caroline with me for the first part of the trip. My mom joined me for the middle part of the trip in the car. And then Caroline joined me for the last part as well. So I didn't, I didn't have like unlimited resources. Honestly, it, it costs a lot of money to like stay at hotels every night and do all those kind of things as well. So I definitely wanted to keep moving and make sure I was making good progress. The first part of the ride, like going through Washington, Washington is a lot <laughs> further across than you would expect. And then Idaho is super short, of course, but Montana is like, it took me something like six or seven days to get across Montana. And it just felt like it was never ending. But once I got on the East Coast, I really felt like I had momentum and I was you know, getting through a state pretty much every day or every two or three days um, I was getting through a state. So that kind of helped the confidence like I was you know, actually getting across the country at that point. Yeah. And you experienced some pretty gnarly weather. Like I was following on a daily basis. <laughs> you know, the first part of the ride, I had, you know, a little bit of rain and then it would get super hot. And that was my biggest crux was trying to take down enough water during the day. Uh, I think on my second day going over the North Cascades, I drank like 12 bottles and I didn't 
pee once. Like I, I was super dehydrated and couldn't get enough water or calories down. And I, I soon realized that I had to start like right at sunrise to try to beat some of the heat. So that's what basically what I did. And that, that was what was sort of hard about the whole thing was just how relentless it was getting up every day an hour before sunrise and thinking about, you know, getting a couple calories in, getting on the bike right at sunrise and then, you know, my bike for, you know, my riding, actual riding time was anywhere from about five hours or just over that to probably about eight hours, depending on the terrain and the wind direction and all that kind of stuff, weather, all that. But when you add in like stopping for hydration, you know, getting refueled and all that kind of stuff, lunch and all that stuff, I was on the bike for like eight hours a day. And it, it was just really hard every morning to get up with saddle sores and think, okay, I'll just get on the bike for eight hours today. So it, it got super monotonous in that, in that way. The good news is obviously I had something to see every day and like progress to make across the United States. And it was really, I miss it a lot now at this point, but at the, there were definitely times on that bike that I was uh, quite miserable. Yeah, I can imagine. And I mean, everyone listening knows what it feels like to feel tired or beyond tired on your bike. And yeah. I imagine that you probably started feeling that way pretty early on and then you had to keep going despite feeling that way. Yeah, I thought I was going to ride myself into shape. That was my whole idea. And that was my fault for expecting that. And it, maybe it would have worked if I had built in a couple of rest days, but you can't bike yourself into shape or get yourself <laughs> in any kind of shape without that recovery. That's like so key to the process. So what happened was I thought maybe after like 10 days, my legs would come around and they'd start feeling better as they would at home. But at home, after those, you know, after you ride for like two weeks and you start feeling better, you also have rest days in there. There's, it's just going to happen. And I didn't have that. And so my quads in particular were, I think I had some deficiencies and who knows what as well, but my cause were super tender and they would hurt when I started riding. And for the most part, they were okay when I was riding. It, it, they hurt going uphill and all that kind of stuff and into the wind, but it was even more just at the hotel or if Caroline like touched my leg, you know, even in the last week, I would like, tw I, I couldn't take it. My legs were super twitchy and like sensitive and just not in the right place. So I, I lost probably another 15 pounds, but I also probably put on a ton of muscle weight. So Part of that, like, I, I probably would have lost more if I wasn't putting on the muscle. And so I, I, was, I, I looked like a different person when I started and finished the, the bike for sure. And my, my body changed. But a couple of days of recovery would have really helped along the way. Yeah, just the, just the things your body went through in one year or in six months, like with all those different endeavors, I can't even imagine. Did you have any like knee pain or, you know, sit bone pain, things like that throughout the ride? Because there's people who have to quit like even a seven day race because of that kind of joint pain or, or just injury. Yeah. I, I didn't necessarily have that. I, I definitely had the saddle sores, which any bikers out there are going to know about. And that was like super painful. It would usually be the worst, like the first hour of the day. And usually like the last hour was pretty bad as well. So that was probably the worst thing. I was most worried about back pain because I tend to have back issues creep up on me. And for the most part, I was okay there. Part of that was I got a, I rode a specialized diverge across the country. And the main reason I did that was to put me a little more upright. So I was in a less aggressive stance on the bike and also to have um, some wider tires. So I was riding 38s the entire time. And I, you know, I was riding a, a decent amount of dirt, not a ton, but a decent amount where a road bike just wouldn't have worked on the route that I went. How did you choose the route? The first part of the route from, I started in Anacortes, Washington and kind of did a Northern, basically it's called the Northern tier route. And that was from the 
ACA, right? Adventure Cycling Association. They have some predetermined routes that you can buy like GPX files for and plug them into your computer. And so for the majority of time from Anacortes to about Fargo, I was on that route. I got off at a couple of different times and did some different things. But generally, I was on kind of a northern tier there. Once I got to the, especially Minnesota, I was basically just every night saying, okay, I need to make it about 100 miles east. And here's a couple of places I kind of want to get to eventually and trying to point that direction. And then I would, it would it'd be a combination of like literally going to Google Maps and typing in two places and then putting it into bike mode and looking at what the route is, putting it in car mode, looking at that route, and then just kind of like looking at a map and saying, okay, well, this road looks a little better than that road and yada, yada. So what became kind of monotonous or uh, difficult in the middle section of the country and, and all the way to the end was every day I was basically looking and trying to find my route for the next day and then having to figure out booking hotels and all that kind of stuff as well. So that, that became a whole nother thing. After I'd ridden all day, the next thing I had to do was kind of figure out where I was going the next day. So uh, it was difficult, but in the end, I really enjoyed the route that I took and you know, 95% of it worked really well. Yeah. And mental fatigue really affects physical fatigue as well. Absolutely. So do you have any advice for people? Because you mentioned monotony and maybe even struggling with the will to go on and then your body hurts. Like, I'm sure that you wanted to quit at certain points during this ride. I'm sure you thought like, gosh, I just can't even imagine riding another, you know, even, even day by day, you, you, you're doing about a hundred miles a day. You're like, I'm only on mile 10. I still have 90 to go. So like, what do you have any mental tips that you used repeatedly? Yeah, I, I would say for the most part, uh, I think my Everest training actually came in really handy here. And I guess to a certain extent, the English Channel as well. And that is you, you, you really can't think about the end in that moment. Like if I was in Washington thinking about the East Coast, thinking about Nantucket, like it, it would be really easy to say, this seems impossible. I'm not going to do this. But all I would do is look at like that day's ride and not worry about the next day at all and just say, okay, I've got whatever it is, 80, 90, 100, 110 miles to do today. Here's how much bird it is. I just have to get through this. It doesn't really matter how long it takes me. And I just have to kind of take it mile by mile instead of like looking at the big picture. And after a while, like all those days kind of add up and those give you confidence saying, you know, to tell yourself that you can do that. And that, you you know, as long as you just keep looking forward at that mile. And once I got like to Chicago and then in Cleveland, all of a sudden I was like, okay, I've been doing this now for whatever it was at that point, probably 25, 30 days. I know I can finish this out. I always knew that it, I could do it. I really struggled with how many miles I could do per day and also just kind of like my mental health and how much I was enjoying it. So I tried to balance that and I, I think I found a decent balance. If I did it all over again, it, like, I would love to go like to Italy and go on a bike tour there. And I think doing a little less miles every day so you can enjoy some of the places and experience mm-hmm. them and what they have to offer would be really fulfilling and there'd, there'd be, it'd be a different kind of ride. But I definitely wanted to see the country. I also wanted that athletic challenge. And so I think I've found a pretty good balance in there for myself. Which of the three was the hardest now that you've done them all? Despite going into this and thinking the bike would be the easiest, I would say the bike was probably the hardest. Just because, like I said, just how relentless it was every day, eight hours or more like of basically working out, that was definitely really hard. I would also say I probably am telling you that because it's the most fresh in my mind. And all three of these things are kind of that type two fun type of thing where the more time that goes by, I feel like it was a little easier and it was a little more fun than it was already. (laughs) 
right now the bike doesn't seem nearly as hard as I thought it, it felt like a week after the ride. I mean, a, a week after the ride, I was like, geez, that is like one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. And I can't believe that just happened. Now I'm like, oh, I rode across the country and oh, I remember all the good parts and all the fun riding and those kind of things. So it's all like becoming more and more fun every day. But the bike was the hardest part. Yeah, that's actually something that I use in the moment, like when something's hard and I'm really, and I might not even be having fun. I'll tell myself, this really sucks right now, but like in 10 hours when I'm done or in three weeks, like this is going to be like, this moment's going to be like nothing. It's going to, it's not going to be intense like this. So I just have to keep going. <laughs> yep. I think, uh, you know, that type two fun, which is the fun that I really like doing because I think it's, there's a sense of accomplishment and then it it's fun also later, maybe not every second of whenever you're doing it, but it, it becomes fun. And then there's that sense of accomplishment that comes with the struggle. How would you change your preparation for this entire um, ultimate world triathlon now that you've done it? It's a good question because I, I don't know that there's a ton more that I could have done. I certainly could have gone into the bike or sorry, the swim with more longer swims under my belt. If I would have done more long swims like last year, last summer, I think that that would have been super helpful. And then as far as, you know, everything else was just, it was kind of the time I had, I, I didn't have a whole lot of options. So, I mean, I hate to say it, but I probably could have spread it out. That would have helped, helped things a lot. But I think probably mostly doing more longer swims just for my mental confidence on the swim would have been great. And then certainly if I could have gotten more biking in between uh, the swim and the, the bike, that would have been really helpful or to build in a day of rest, like 10 days in or something like that would have been like massive. So those are probably the top two things that come to mind. Yeah, and what an incredible thing this would do for your confidence. I mean, to be able to do all of those things in six months and accomplish some of them with very little training. I mean, yeah. How do you feel? <laughs> Honestly, mostly I feel the same. Like, you know, you think you come back from some of the stuff and like your world's going to be turned upside down because you like summited Everest or something like that. But I just feel like the same person. That being said, like, I definitely, I think I'll be more ready to like jump on some of these bigger goals that I, I haven't done. I've done plenty of athletic achievements through my life, but never like on this kind of scale. And so I'm already kind of like looking at what, what could I do next? And I kind of hate that question a lot of times, like what is next? But when you do something like this, it probably does give you that extra boost of confidence to, to look at the bigger goal and say, Oh, there's, there's this other thing that, you know, I'd love to do, but I didn't know if I could do it. And, and maybe we should give that a shot. Yeah, there's a question I roll around in my mind a lot. It's the pursuit of more and what's next. And there's a, a difficult balance between really stopping and appreciating everything that you've done or the thing that you just did. And then that feeling of striving for more and realizing what you're actually striving for. So yeah, like, how do you do that? How do you balance that? You know, I, um, it goes back to just having fun, whatever you're doing and enjoying it. Because I don't, I think if you lose that, you know, it's just... It, there's no reason to do it, to be completely honest. So I think as long as I'm having fun, then I'm going to keep doing this stuff. But I, I think you said it really well. I think that balance of, of trying to figure out, you know, is this enough or do you just keep pushing? And I think as an athlete, sometimes it's hard to find that balance. But I think, yeah, I, I definitely, it's just part of my lifestyle and things that I want to do um, are, you know, getting to the mountains. I think I want to do some more channel swims and stuff like that after after doing the English channel. So I'm kind of looking forward to figuring out what that is. And when I finished the bike and I got a lot of what's next, I was kind of, 
not annoyed, but trying to tell people like, Hey, let me just enjoy this for now. But now it's been a couple of months. And I think at this point it's, it's okay for me to kind of start thinking about what's next. And part of that is like, I want something to train for. And whenever I've got something to train for, it's a little easier to get out of bed at five thirty in the morning rather than hit that snooze or, or, you know, or sleep in another hour or two. So I definitely want something in the future to look forward to. I can definitely relate with that and understand that. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm excited to figure out what that next is. Cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Like, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you and follow your adventures? Probably the easiest way is just on Instagram at this point, just at rob.lee and Lee is L-E-A. So that's an easy way. If you're coming to Park City, you can certainly hit me up on Instagram or I have to say, uh, if you're looking to purchase in the area, you know, I got to pay for these adventures. So I'd love to help you out. And you can always hit me up at my email, which is roblee at bhhsutah.com. So you can hit me up there and help you find a place to live here in uh, beautiful Park City. Love it. Yeah. I'm sure people listening to this have either done Park City point to point um, mm-hmm. 70, yeah, 75 mile mountain bike race. I highly recommend that race and I'll actually probably be there, you know, hopefully in September, um, for that next yeah. year. So yeah, guys check out park city, check out the real estate in park city <laughs> and check out Rob. Yeah. yeah. I'd also be remiss if I didn't uh, congratulate you and excited for the little one coming soon. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And thanks for being an inspiration for so many people, not only, you know, taking on these massive challenges for yourself, but for everything that you're doing in terms of gender equality, like it really matters and it really makes a difference. And I just, I really love following both you and Caroline. I appreciate that. And we definitely follow you and get inspiration from you as well. So appreciate you having me on and uh, definitely look forward to hopefully hooking up when you're out here in September. That was such an awesome episode with Rob and I am so incredibly impressed and inspired by what he was able to do, period, and in such a short period of time. That is an adventure that will last a lifetime and I think that we had some really interesting topics in this conversation that are thought-provoking and things that we can start taking into our conversations with our friends as well. Make sure you follow Rob on Instagram and we linked the implicit bias disruptor questions in the show notes. And I think that they're important to check out. The he for she initiative is also linked up in the show notes. And if you want to listen to my podcast with Rob's wife, Caroline Gleick, you can do that as well. Also linked up in the show notes. Thank you so much to Sufferfest Beer for supporting this episode. I love that this beer company is inspired by athletes and it's run by women. It's pretty awesome. If you want to get back to the show, you can donate via Patreon or PayPal. Those are on sonyalooney.com slash podcasts and also in the individual show notes page. Thank you so much to those of you who are contributing financially to my work. It really does help. It makes a huge difference in paying my staff and making sure that this show continues to thrive and go on. If you're not signed up for my newsletter, go to sonyalooney.com slash newsletter. You'll get a weekly email notifying you of new podcasts and anything that I came across this week that might be of interest to you. You also will get a free copy of my 21-page ebook called Partly Sunny, Cultivating a Resilient Mind. And if you don't want to sign up for the newsletter, but you want the book, you can get it at moxieandgrit.com. Wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures. I love you guys. Thanks so much for listening. And we'll see you right back here next week.